this week on the Backtable Podcast. I've debated whether or not to just start it proactively in everybody, or possibly to your point of someone, you know, if you see during the procedure that maybe there's a lot of bubbles escaping and maybe that might increase their risk of having short-term urethral inflammation, that might be an opportunity to just put them on a course of Celebrex proactively. But I typically tell the patient, if you're having trouble after a week or two, just give my office a call and we'll, we'll start you on something. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. Today's Backtable Podcast is sponsored by Boston Scientific's Urology Division. Boston Scientific is dedicated to transforming lives through innovative medical solutions that improve the health of patients around the world. This includes solutions for benign prostate hyperplasia, or BPH, one of the most prevalent urology conditions facing men today. Boston Scientific's Resume Water Vapor Therapy is a minimally invasive BPH treatment that provides urologists with an efficient, durable solution that reduces prostate volume while preserving sexual function. With proven efficacy, durability, and lower clinical progression rates than daily medications, AUA guidelines support a chair decision-making process for the consideration of resume as a first-line treatment and alternative to medications. Additionally, if insufficiently treated BPH can negatively impact bladder function, making earlier intervention valuable for patients. Give your patients an alternative to daily medications and long-lasting BPH relief with resume therapy. Now, back to the show. This is Jose Ocha Silva, as your host this week. Today, we have Dr. Seth Beaches. He did residency at Harvard Medical School. After this, he did fellowship at UT San Diego. Dr. Beaches specializes in all procedures of the prostate, including minimal invasive procedures like resume, Urolift, robotic surgery, and green light laser. He is designated as a center of excellence for resume and green light. Currently, he's Associated Program Director for the UC San Diego Kaiser Laparoscopy Endurology Fellowship and is now an Associate Professor of Urology at UC San Diego School of Medicine. Dr. Beaches says, welcome to Backtable. Thank you, Jose, for having me. And I'm very excited to today's episode. BPH is probably one of the most things that I do, BPH and stones, so definitely talking about resume and everything that goes with it is very exciting. So, Seth, a patient goes to your office in each of visit. What was the first things you do? Was it the logistic behind the patient? Do you have an MA doing a Euroflow? How do you go when you have a new patient in the office? A great question. I think there's sort of two flavors of patients with BPH that I see. One of them is the patient who has self-referred himself in with no prior workup. And the other one is someone who might be referred from a primary care provider who's already been somewhere along several phases in the workup. So generally for someone starting from scratch, you know, if they come in com complaining of worsening lower urinary tract symptoms, obviously history and physical to figure out a baseline IPSS score and, and getting a sense of where they are on that pattern. If we have the resources, usually I try to get a urinalysis and a PVR first. I find that uroflow is nice, but if we haven't had a baseline urinalysis, we usually start with that and a post-void residual. And that kind of gives us an initial picture of how well are they emptying rule out a urinary tract infection, 
And then with the IPSS, getting a sense of what type of symptoms do they have? Is it more of a storage problem? Is it more of a flow overactive bladder versus an obstructive pattern picture? For some reason, I don't know, I'm seeing less of the classic obstructive symptoms. I'm seeing more frequency urgency that those are usually more challenging between knowing if it's overactive bladder versus actually the, the prostate impinging in the, in the bladder. But, but we can talk about that in a little bit. So in, in terms of the symptoms, I mean, the patient may have frequency urgency, slow stream. Do you offer first a pill, tansulose, whatever, any pill? Or are you doing more tests prior to doing something? So usually if they're brand new and we've gotten some baseline, it sounds like they have some component of obstruction, if like a weak stream or straining to empty or a sense of incomplete emptying. Usually we'll talk about a medical therapy first and a trial. And I usually frame it in the context of this doesn't necessarily have to be a long-term medication. It's just an experiment to see if it works. Because I think some patients come in very open to medications. Others come in because they, they really don't want a medication. And I think that's important, as we'll come to, because when you think about the surgical management algorithm, I think historically the pathway was to try medicine first. And if you fail medicine, then think about surgical options. And I think nowadays it's a little bit more of a blended picture. So some patients may not want to take a medication or may not tolerate it due to side effects. So I always frame it as let's consider an alpha blocker such as tamsulosin and see how you respond to it. If you respond really well and you have a significant improvement in your symptoms, then you may find that you're happy and your symptoms are better and that's all you need. And if it doesn't work for you or even if you decide you don't want to be on it, that's okay, but at least let's try it and see. Because I've found some patients actually have much greater benefit on it than they thought they would, and then they become more open to that idea versus going on to surgery. Exactly. And I think also some patients, they might be a little bit apprehensive to go to the urology thinking that you're going to go do surgery immediately. So definitely offering that pill or trial period. And also I think it gives you information and also gives the information to the patient. Hey, we tried it. We didn't work. So it can go both ways. Yeah. And in terms of cystoscopy, ultrasound of the prostate, when would you offer the patient that? That's a great question. So especially I get a lot of patients referred in from a primary care. And so in that context, often they may have been tried on an alpha blocker already, and then either their symptoms are worsening or or progressing where they don't want to be on it. So in that sense, usually if they're failing a medication, then I'll either talk about a different medication. So now that we have Tadalafil as an option, sometimes that's something men are interested, especially if they have concomitant erectile dysfunction. It can be a nice way to sort of alleviate both. Sometimes people, if they're gung-ho on medicine, will talk about finasteride if their prostate is, you know, over 30 or 40 grams. But I think Usually if, they're, if they come to me and they've been on medication and they're still needing to see a urologist, we're usually thinking about some kind of surgical or procedural approach. And so I usually tell them, you know, the next step is, would be to do, in my practice, a cystoscopy plus a transrectal ultrasound so that we can get the full picture of the anatomy. We can look at the prostate. We can look for, you know, is there bilobar versus trilobar hypertrophy? Do you have a median lobe? What's the distance from the varium montanum to the bladder neck? How much does the median lobe extend into the bladder? And then also, is there trabeculation and evidence of bladder strain? And then I use the transrectal ultrasound to get a good volume assessment. And I usually frame it for the patients as this lets me give you the best picture that we can then talk through all the options. So I've found, especially in my clinic where it can be very busy and time is short and sometimes our resources are stretched, usually in the first visit, if I get a post-void residual and a urinalysis, I'll actually send them home with 
an information packet that talks about all the different procedures, ranging from minimally invasive to maximally invasive. And I say, go home and just read this three-page brochure so that you know what all the different things are. And then when you come in and we do your cystoscopy and your truss, and then we'll do a Euroflow after that, we can kind of talk through which procedures fit based on what we found. So I kind of streamline it into one appointment that way. And I do get a Euroflow at that point too, after the cystoscopy, because you've kind of filled them up. So you, it kind of makes it easy to just do it then. And you mentioned the primary physician. Do you guys have a great relationship with them and they already send you the patient talking about some procedures and the patient is already more comfortable? Or they just said to you, you deal with that. I'm just curious. Yeah, it's a great question. I'd say it's a mixture of both. So there are some primary care physicians and partners we have who I've met with and kind of taught them, educated them a little bit about different procedures. And then there's others who are very not very open-ended. And, and I think you know, the, especially the minimally invasive surgical therapies like Resume are very attractive now, especially to younger patients and other things. And primary care is very excited about that as an option. I think historically, everybody knows about the TERP and even the green light and robotic. And I think the minimally invasive are growing in their appeal. And so I think primary cares are interested in that. And so having education with them a little bit about how it works can be helpful in terms of a sooner referral to a urologist. In our practice, we're trying to establish that relation with the, at least the primary physicians that send more so that they know what we can offer, minimally invasive stuff so that the patient is not scared. Or sometimes for some patients that might not be great candidates for surgery, they think that's going to be a, a long surgery. Definitely it's good to let them know, hey, there's minimally invasive quick stuff that minimal sedation or, or minimal anesthesia that they're going to do fine. Yeah, I think it's great. You know, one thing I've been doing sooner in the workup too is I tend to go straight towards the cystoscopy and the truss earlier in the relationship because I tell the patients, this isn't a commitment to get surgery or to get a procedure, but at least it gives us information about what are we up against. Because I think in the old days, you might languish on a medication or two for two, three years. And in fact, maybe, you know, we know that the sooner you do a procedure in people who have severe symptoms, the better they'll be long-term. And I think one of the holy grails in BPH that we don't know yet is when is the ideal time to pull the trigger and say, this is the time for you to do a procedure or else maybe your bladder will start getting worse and, and may lose function ultimately. And I think looking inside, if you see things like trabeculations or a severe median lobe, I actually um, try to involve the patients. So I've found that probably two thirds of them are actually interested in seeing the results. And so we will watch on the screen together and I can show them and say, hey, look at all those trabeculations that's a sign that your bladder has been working harder all these years. And so maybe instead of waiting another five years, maybe doing it sooner might make sense for you. And I, I found that involving the patient in the cystoscopy is very effective for counseling on next steps, but also it helps them tolerate the cystoscopy better. And I, I use a single-use scope with a monitor that has video on it so I can actually record the video. And if they don't want to watch, usually once it's done, they're very happy to watch the replay on it. So I find that that's a really nice tool. Is that the, the AMBU? Yeah, I use the AMBU. So we have it as backup in our office. We use the, I think it's called the Labory now. Well, now it's Labory, but it was Congentix. And that has sheath that you toss out. Oh, yeah. So we have that as our main instrument, but then we have the AMBU as backup because sometimes those sheath are in back order. And well, we have the AMBU has great visualization and very mobile, the monitor. So definitely that part is, 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 is good. I have no complaints. How do you like the Cogentix? Do you have a good workflow for it out of curiosity? Yeah. I think the image of the AMBO is a little bit better. I think our 
monitor has been there for four years. I mean, we've been using it for four or five years, so I don't know if they have a new version now. Yeah. But yeah, well, that's the only thing that, but but everything else is it looks good. Yeah, I would say we, we looked at both of those, and at least in one of my satellite practices where they we just have very limited staff. I have one LVN working with me and one MA. So we ended up, we find that for us, the AMBU is great because I can literally every 15 minutes I can do a procedure. It is going to be faster, definitely. So for us, that worked out, but they're both great options. Because the other one, yeah, the MA has to go and prepare the sheath, make sure that it's not leaking, make sure that it's in place. But it, it is it is a great product also. So Seth, in terms of that patient that you do the this cystoscopy, you do the trust, you decide, hey, this is the moment. And well, I'm going to take a pause. You mentioned the, the bladder part, when it is going to be a, a good time to put the trigger. And unfortunately, I mean, I guess now we know more about the bladder and how important bladder health is rather than just talking about the prostate obstruction, we know the, the side effects. And a lot of patients that they go to the primary and they do the PSA, everything is good. So they think that by just being the PSA is good, that means that the prostate is normal or that going to the bathroom is normal with age. That's not true. But definitely in terms of bladder health, how do you consult the patient? Do you mention the, the bladder health part prior to, to doing anything? Yeah, you know, I think that's a really important point. And I've actually found now in my practice, I tend to do an aggressive amount of counseling upfront before any procedure. And I usually tell the patient, you know, especially for example, a cystoscopy, sometimes patients come in and they say, oh, you know, I've had one done by another urologist six months ago. Do I really need another one? And I'd kind of explain to them, I think personally, I'm a little greedy. And I, in the past, I think I've been more tolerant of outside cystoscopies, especially earlier in time. And now I tend to tell the patient, you know, I, I'd rather do my own and, and do go over it with you because I can really counsel you on exactly how your recovery will go based on things that we might see. And I think patients really appreciate that. So I think preparing them for all the potential side effects after a procedure, if they're over-prepared, I feel like they tend to do much better and they end up actually not having as many severe symptoms probably because they're prepared for it. So I find showing them the bladder and saying, hey, look, your bladder is really trabeculated. Or another one is if they comment that they have storage symptoms. You know, I, I get a lot of people, especially people in their 70s who come with severe nocturia. And I tell them, you know, to be fully dis transparent, if you have four times a night that you're waking up, this procedure is probably not going to get you down to zero. I usually quote them half. I say, well, we'll usually get it down by half. So if you're waking up four times, we'll probably get you down to waking up two times at night. Or if you have really bad urgency and overactive bladder symptoms, the hope is by opening your obstruction, this will cause your bladder to relax and sort of retrain and recalibrate. And hopefully those urgency symptoms will get better. But we now know probably one in three or one in four men will continue to have those kind of symptoms even if we treat the obstruction. And we may have to put you on a different kind of medicine like a beta-3 agonist later. So I've found that if I warn them up front, because a lot of them come in expecting this procedure will take them off of meds and it'll cure everything and it'll cure nocturia. And, and the reality is it may make it better, but it may not get it to zero or they may continue to have storage symptoms. So I think tuning their expectations is really important and helps for the success of the procedure. And I mean, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but in terms of, you mentioned nocturia, I tell the patient, I, I think the propaganda that was created around nocturia, I think most of the time it's not B, a BPH or, or anything related because I, I, I do the AUA symptom score and the patient, well, that's at night during the day, I'm zero, 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 zero. Well, oh yeah. So, so I mean, so, so, I mean, you're not having a problem of the prostate of the bladder. It's something else. You're either snoring or sleep apnea, something else, diabetes, something else. I don't know, but what are your feelings about that? That's a great point. Cause I would say probably 
I mean, every clinic, I get a couple patients who come in with isolated nocturia. They're in their 70s. They're really tired because they're getting up so often at night and they're, they come to me from they're exhausted. And then, you know, you ask them, well, how, how many times are you getting up during the day? And they're like, oh, I don't go to the bathroom during the day. I pee every five hours. It's just at night. And I always say that's a red flag, right? Because if your prostate is causing obstruction, it should be causing obstruction all the time. And it's really hard because I think, I mean, sometimes you end up treating them with a procedure, but I think you just have to be really honest with them up front to say, listen, this doesn't quite fit the paradigm. I use the clogged toilet analogy a lot. I'm like, if your toilet is clogged at nighttime, it shouldn't unclog during the day. It's going to be clogged all the time. And we're trying to fix that. And so I do do a lot of pul pulmonology referrals for sleep studies. I've been very impressed with how often either a CPAP mask or giving someone a CPAP mask, you know, they may have one and they never use it. And that can be helpful. The other thing also is sometimes I'll do a trial of a beta-3 agonist alone because that has been approved for nocturia. And, and I've been impressed with, you know, sometimes that'll treat the nighttime symptoms. I'll just have them take it at bedtime. So definitely that's something that I didn't know about that. I mean, I use it sometimes just to see if the patient has overactivity, but I didn't know there was actually a study and, and there was data about it. So that's great. But yeah, I, I definitely send patients for referral for the sleep study because just like you said, uh, the prostate should be obstructing 24-7, not just at night. But I'm going to use it. I'm going to steal that analogy. Okay, Seth, so you do the cystoscopy, you do the ultrasound, the patient has a 40, 50 gram prostate, and you guys decide, hey... We're going to do the resume. Or, so I don't want to go into resume versus green light or, or something like that, but let's say you, you decide, let's do resume. Who's a candidate for resume? Who's not a candidate for resume? So I think, yeah, especially with the era of the missed therapies, right, the minimally invasive surgical therapies, it's really changed the landscape a little bit. The nice thing about resume is pretty much everybody is a candidate if they f meet the size criteria. You know, resume, was a, the original studies were all done for prostates around 30 grams up to 80 grams. And so most of the data, at least that we have for the long-term outcomes is based in that range. And so I, usually when I quote patients, the success rates, specifically, you know, 4% failure rate, surgical failure rate at five years, one to 2% per year, that's for prostates in that range. And the nice thing is you can do it in the office with minimal anesthesia. I usually do it in the operating room, but we use a monitored anesthesia care or, or less. The nice thing is there's not really a patient, there's not a contraindication. So especially people who are elderly, people who have really poor hearts, even people who are on blood thinning medications, I think it, this can be a pretty forgiving procedure. Young men, so it's kind of nice. I think the old paradigm of, oh, you're too old or too sick to have a TERP, you could have one of these procedures instead. And so that's been really nice. I think the other point, you know, and who is a candidate, I think the main decision tree is probably in addition to using size, it's probably anatomy and then also sort of patient preference on outcomes. So if we think about like comparing a, a mist like resume to a TERP, a green light, I think, you know, there's some nuances there, but kind of the extreme examples often if someone has more severe symptoms, let's say they're in retention or really have a high IPSS score, something like a, a surgical procedure will treat the outlet immediately. So the next day or whenever you take their catheter out, if you void trial them, I tell them they'll be peeing right away. You know, they might have some symptoms and, and have a period of kind of bladder retraining that they have to go through with some urge and maybe urge incontinence, but they'll have a quick resolution of their symptoms and then they have to kind of get through a recovery. In contrast, the resume treatment may take six weeks to three months to see a gradual improvement in your symptoms, but because it's gradual, you don't have an extreme recovery period per se. So you can get a resume and you can be pretty active. You can 
go out and do heavy lifting and do sports sooner. You, there's not really a lot of restrictions. And you may have some irritative symptoms, but in general, it's it's relatively minor. So I think part of that is important too, especially when you have someone with a 50 to 80 gram prostate is what are your goals in recovery? And then also the ejaculation question. So preservation of, of anti-grade ejaculation, how important is that? So for some men, it can be very important. I usually joke that say that I say, you know, most men in your age group who come to me for trouble urinating aren't looking to still have kids, but that would certainly be a consideration. So that's another area. But that's kind of how I draw that broad strokes between a minimally invasive and a more involved surgery is kind of the immediate versus the, the more gradual improvement. And you mentioned the overactivity symptoms afterwards for those patients that have been obstructed for a long time. I think we definitely will resume. I don't see that severe because it's a gradual process versus the immediate relief of the obstruction. So for some patients that I have had that for two months, maybe even three months, they have been miserable just with severe overactivity. Eventually, it settles down, but I don't. I, I haven't seen that with results. So that's definitely something for those patients that have frequency, urgency, m more irritative symptoms with a big prostate. They do good. Yeah, that's actually a, a really good point. I, I see the same thing, and I think after you make that point, I may even lean towards that a little bit more. And the patients who have a lot of storage symptoms and and urgency, frequency, you know, all else considered, if all else is equal, that that may push me towards the resume just because they have a more, uh, don't have a severe change in their symptoms during recovery. I'll give you my story when we started doing resume. I started doing resume because patients wanted. I didn't believe, or I wouldn't say that I didn't believe in the, in the technology, but it's different than when you, with a TERP, you see the opening. With a laser, you see the opening. So with resume, you need just to trust on the procedure, trust on the technology, then the mechanism hopefully will work at some point. So I think my, my first three resumes that I did the patients wanted it. And I did the first ones and the patient did great. And then I have been doing a lot. How was your experience? Yeah, you know, I would say it was very similar. I think I was very excited about it when it first came out because I think compared to other procedures, so I did Urolift and Greenlight and Terp. And for Urolift, there's anatomical considerations. So you have a median lobe, for example. And the nice thing here is it's a little bit more agnostic. Resume is agnostic to anatomy. And so that was nice. And I think the first few that I did, you know, you inject the steam and you're like, maybe you see some blanching of the tissue, maybe you don't, but you don't see any big changes, right? So you're kind of thinking, oh, I hope this is where the magic happens, right? And um, But you, you don't really get that immediate feedback. And you're like, well, I hit the median lobe. I hope it uh, I hope it goes away. And yeah, to your point, I think people do really well. I've done cystoscopy on a few of them for other reasons afterwards for a recurring stricture or some other things. And I've been very impressed by the the defect that's created. I mean, you can really see down to the capsule. We joke because, you know, we are our fellows and people who do holips here and when they look when they look at that, they say, Oh man, that's that's the capsule. They actually admit that they're impressed by what they see, which is hard for people who do holips because they're very proud of you know, the holop is the beautiful technique to get to the capsule. And it took less than five minutes. What do you tell the patient preoperatively what to expect after the resume? So this is where I think I've evolved a little bit in my practice because I think, you know, like any procedure, patients go onto the internet and they read Dr. Google. And so they often come in with expectations or ideas that, that may not quite be accurate. And so I usually counsel them. So first and foremost, they do get a catheter. For my practice, I typically leave it in three days. I used to do two days, 
And I probably can go back to that someday, but I just found at two days, every once in a while, I would get someone who went back into retention. And so I moved to three days and I haven't really had any trouble with failing void trials. If the prostate is larger, like over 70 and certainly over 80 grams, then I typically will leave it in five to seven days. And I explained to them, you know, the reason for this is it just physics, right? You have a larger volume of tissue. We blast it with steam. The entire area gets swollen, edematous, and you're not able to urinate. And it takes time for all that swelling and tissue changes to start to occur. That's, I think, the big one. A lot of men are like, oh, it's a minimally invasive procedure, but wait, I need a catheter. And so I'm like, yeah, you know, that's the, it's worth it. If you can put up with the catheter for three days, seven days and get through it to preserve ejaculation and have a pretty minimal recovery is great. And then I usually tell them, you're not going to see a change right away. You might see it as early as three weeks. You might start to see improvement in your symptoms, but it may take up to three months. And certainly by three and three to six months is when the studies would show that that's when you see your maximum improvement. Even if you know, you're know you not feeling like there's a difference at three weeks, be patient. It's going to take time. And then I also tell them, you know, there's a chance in my practice, it's probably about one in four men may have a worsening of irritative symptoms. For me, actually, the symptom that, that people pick up if they're going to get something is urethral pain. It's pain at the tip of the penis. And I find it's like right at the end of voiding, sort of a terminal voiding pain. And if you ask them where it is, they always point to the tip of the penis. And I think it's related to prostate inflammation because the nerves for the prostate and the penile urethra are very are, are similar. And so I think it's just inflammation in that area. And do you think in those patients, is it smaller glands that you think that the needle went closer to the capsule or you think that it's it doesn't matter? It's a great question. I'm not sure. I used to wonder if that was the case, if the needle was going deeper, closer to the capsule. But I almost wonder if it's actually the opposite and if the needle isn't deep enough. Because there's sometimes when you fire the needle in and you see a little bit of bubbles coming out from your hole while you're deploying the steam. I wonder if that bubbles coming out indicates that maybe some of the steam is escaping on the inside edge of the urethra versus sometimes you drop the needle in and it's clean and you might see some color changes beneath the surface. I have a colleague who is convinced that you want to sink the needle deeper and not see color changes because he thinks that the color changes indicate there's steam kind of at the urethelial lining, which might be more irritative. So yeah, that's what I understand that if you see that the, I mean, if you have some scaping of, of vapor, shouldn't cause anything long-term, but definitely the patient should have more irritative symptoms first. But yeah, to your point, I mean, I think I was, I started doing Eurolift before I resumed. So I think I was trying to push the needle more, just, just like in the Eurolift, you had, you press against the, against the prostate, but the rep told me, Hey, don't push that much. For me, what I do, I, I push it in a little bit and then try to retarget it just a, a little bit. So it makes like a seal more or less. And I, I don't see that much. I haven't seen in, in the past year, I don't see much, that much escape. I mean, sometimes it happens, but I see less than what I did when I first started. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think, um, you know, I've been measuring prostates now, like on either on a truss or on an MRI or a CT. And, you know, usually the ones we're treating are at least three and a half or four centimeters in diameter. So I was figuring like if the needle sticks out a half centimeter to a centimeter, it'd be unusual if you were to kind of prefer, you know, you're probably not going to get towards the back, the outer capsule with it, but it is impressive seeing how the steam kind of moves through that area and cleans it out if you do a cystoscopy later. I think the median lobe is the one, the median lobe is one area that I've, I think, modified my practice a little bit because I think historically I would, the teaching is to, you know, see the bladder neck and come back to fields of view or one centimeter distal to the bladder neck. If the median lobe 
encroaches into the bladder, I'll actually measure one centimeter back from where the where the median lobe starts because I find if you start at the bladder neck, you're missing all of that kind of proximal median lobe tissue. And if I look back at the people where who ha- in my small number of people who failed resume, that seems to be a common theme is that, that there's residual median lobe tissue, either that just the steam didn't reach it or maybe there's some weird tissue reaction. So in those cases, I mean, looking back, would you have done more treatments there or how would you have resolved the problem? I think doing the treatment a little bit more proximal. So either more treatments or or slightly more proximal because I think in the in the ones that didn't work, I was a little bit more distal and the, the proximal part of the median lobe remained there. So whether it means um, two more treatments diagonally from the sides and slightly closer in or one sort of 12 o'clock treatment, but, but more proximal. Okay. And in those cases, I mean, if you go more proximal, are you, there's more chances of a retroejaculation or should it matter? You know, it's a great question. I haven't seen it and I don't know, I guess it depends on your philosophy of what causes retrograde ejaculation or what causes anterograde ejaculation, whether it's the bladder neck closing or whether it's the paracollicular tissue, you know, around the veru. I think there's theories that either one of those is involved in promoting ejaculation. So I don't know. I think if you stick to the median lobe tissue itself and you're just getting adenoma, I think the bladder neck is probably kind of preserved underneath there. The detrusor fibers are preserved. I mean, we know in some of these new treatments like the water jet therapy, where they're treating the entire bladder neck and doing that butterfly cut where they seem to be able to preserve ejaculation. So maybe it's, you know, more important to save that tissue by the vero than it is the bladder neck. Okay. And in terms of, can you walk us through, a, let's say, a, a 40 gram prostate, you go in, how do you do the procedure? Yeah. So in my institution, we do them in the, um, in an outpatient surgery center, just because it's, we have a high efficiency there. And then I've, I've never met a patient who didn't appreciate taking a quick nap while the rigid cystoscope was put inside them. It's funny because I see patients who've had other procedures done in the office. You know, you mentioned the option of going to the operating room and they're all like, oh, that sounds amazing. They're like, I, I did it once in the office. I had that rigid thing stuck in there and it may not have been painful, but it certainly was still memorable. And so for us, you know, offering it in the, in the surgery center is a nice plus. And then we can titrate. So the anesthesiologist will adjust, you know, usually we do a monitored anesthesia care. They just have a oxygen mask on them or they're hand masking. I typically, I use a Eurojet for lidocaine jelly either before or at the end of the case. Typically we use a small amount of propofol if it's a monitored anesthesia care. And then um, basically I'll insert the scope. And once we get inside, sort of investigate, you know, is it a bilobar prostate or is there a median lobe involvement? And then really the first step is measuring that distance from the bladder neck to the vera montanum. So you can withdraw the scope. Each field of view on the scope is a half centimeter. So if you withdraw and it's four fields of view, then you know it's probably about two centimeters. And so potentially you'll give two treatments on each side, potentially. I say potentially because sometimes the prostate is oriented more horizontally and sometimes it's oriented more vertically like a football. And so if you have like a vertical football orientation, the distance from the bladder neck to the vero may only be one centimeter. So you can do one treatment in the lateral lobes, and then you may actually do a treatment sort of anterior or posterior. So you might do two treatments, but more in a vertical orientation than in a horizontal one. And then typically I'll do one centimeter between the treatments. So I come back from the bladder neck, do a treatment, then I'll rotate to the other side, do a treatment, and then I'll come back again 
and then double check where the varimontanum is first and make sure I'm still, you know, proximal to that and then do a treatment. And then if it's a median lobe, I'll either do a single treatment at 12 o'clock or if it's larger, I'll do two treatments sort of at a 45 degree angle from, from the sides. We're actually looking at a multi-institutional data set that we've put together with 600 resumes right now. And one thing that we're finding, and there's been a publication on it called Less is More, and we're finding that if you give two or three treatments versus one, it actually looks like by the time you get to three to six months, the end result in terms of IPSS score is the same. The only difference is in the short term, you may have less irritative symptoms in the patients who get less treatments. So it's something that I've started to do is I, I tend to favor, if it's all kind of equivocal, like if it's looking like two versus three treatments, I'll actually lean towards two treatments. And if I can do just one treatment, I've been doing that too. And patients seem to do great. The data is early though. So obviously, and we only have about a year's worth of follow-up. So it still remains to be seen if it's durable. But I think something to think about, especially if you have a patient who's concerned about irritative symptoms, is just err on the side of less rather than, than more. And that's, and that's something that I, thankfully, I started doing resumes after we knew that less is better. Because I know other, I have seen patients from other urologists that did it when it first started, that they were just doing multiple treatments or, or too many treatments, just having the, the full 13 treatments in a small prostate. And those patients are miserable. They persist with that irritation. So, so definitely, thankfully, I, I started doing the less is better and the reps were really great to say, hey, Trust the technology. The patient is going to do good. And it's something, like I said, the instant gratification that you get from TERP or Greenlight or Europe, you don't get it with, with Resume, but you need to trust the, the technology. Yeah, so you mentioned two or three days with the catheter. After the procedure, what medication do you use for the patient? So typically, most of them are already on Tamsulosin, usually, because if I'm, I'll either, you know, I may even try them on it and say, hey, you know, are you okay just continuing it through the surgery just to help improve your chance of passing your, your void trial? So if they can tolerate it, I'll, I'll have them on that already. And then typically I give everyone intraoperative dose of IV antibiotics. We use a hospital nomogram to determine that. And then I usually send everyone home on Bactrim until the catheter is removed. And I've found that that has two benefits. One is I was actually surprised that there were, you know, a few people who were getting urinary tract infections from the catheter removal procedure. So I found that giving them Bactrim until then really reduces that. And I do think that there is an anti-inflammatory component to Bactrim, which also helps kind of shrink the prostate, I think, early on and kind of gets that inflammation down sooner so that they'll be voiding sooner and, and kind of recovering faster. That's typically all I give them. If they're on Flomax, we'll continue it until the first follow-up visit, which I usually have around six weeks, and that's it. I actually, if a patient is complaining later about having your, that urethral burning or urethral irritative symptoms, then I'll typically give them Celebrex for four weeks, and I've been blown away by how effective it is. It works really well. All of their irritative symptoms go away very quickly. I've debated whether or not to just start it proactively in everybody, or possibly to your point, if someone, you know, if you see during the procedure that maybe there's a lot of bubbles escaping and maybe that might increase their risk of having short-term urethral inflammation, that might be an opportunity to just put them on a course of Celebrex proactively. But I typically tell the patient, if you're having trouble after a week or two, just give my office a call and we'll we'll start you on something. So I, I use Meloxicam because it's what I was use, using for green light. I started using Celebrex for testicular pain and it's been amazing. So yeah, I've, I'm gonna I'm probably gonna start using it for for resume also. I have to yeah I have to give credit to my men's health 
colleagues because they use it a lot in the groin pain arena. And then I found it, it works really well for inflammatory related stuff. I'm going to take that also and start using it for the, for the prostate because I usually just, just for the growing, but, but not for the prostate. I want to start changing my post-op orders in Epic. Some people I know will give like a, a short course of steroids in that first week, which I think probably just helps reduce the inflammation from the swelling. I haven't routinely done it. I, I think the back trim kind of serves that same purpose for me, but just something that I think is a nice additional option. You know, if you have someone who maybe fails their void trial or they're having kind of struggling with a weak stream, a short course of steroids might, you know, be helpful. And you use a Z-pack or, or what, what do they use? Yeah, I think a Z-pack, probably the easiest, just kind of the, the short taper. Yeah, for some reason, I don't use steroid i don't i don't know during residency they, they got a bike rep or something but i don't use steroids in our practice don't, don't know why me too i we were kind of taught that you know if you're already giving antibiotics to reduce your risk of infection you know i always worry with steroids does that you know potentially worsen your your chances of preventing an infection who knows it's probably just how we were trained so seth you mentioned the patient you see it three days after we do the volume trial and then 60 weeks after. And then what? If the patient is doing good, symptoms are better, you, three months afterwards, or when, when do you see them again? Yeah, I typically, so they'll have a nurse visit at three days to take out the catheter. And then I'll usually see them around six weeks. And partly research-driven, we'll typically do a PVR and a Euroflow, partly for academic kind of collecting our data on it. And then if they're doing well, I'll usually see them back at three months. And then we'll definitely do an IPSS and a Euroflow and a PVR and compare it to the pre-op. I think, you know, some early data we're finding is maybe the IPSS score early on is it is an indicator of whether they're going to have some irritative symptoms during the recovery. So I think at that six-week mark, if they are, usually if they had some short-term irritative symptoms, they would be gone by then. I usually joke to the patient before surgery, I say, I'm going to wait till six weeks to see you because then you'll be, you know, really on the on the road to improvement. But if they are having trouble at six weeks, that's when I might, you know, if I haven't considered Celebrex, for example, I'll try that. Or rarely would I add like a beta-3 agonist, although it's pretty unusual, to be honest. Usually at six weeks, they're, they're doing really well. So then I'll do a three-month follow-up. And then usually after that, I joke, we had a MA who would make a certificate of graduation. And so we would give it to them at the six-month or at the three-month visit or even the six-month and then send them on their way. I'm going to steal that one as well. <laughs> that, that's an excuse to, to just get one patient out of the office and, and try to get new new patients in. You know, giving them a certificate is great because otherwise they always want to keep coming back every three to six months. And we're like, you know, this isn't, they're so used to that from having medicines titrated. And you're like, you don't need that anymore. You know, once a year or just see your PCP and give me a call. I would say, obviously, following their PSA annually, even after this procedure, but I usually defer that to the primary care, if possible, just to free up space to see new patients. So in terms of PSA, I have seen a patients that the PSA goes up, goes up after the, the procedure. And I had a patient, I saw him last week and I did the resume like two or three months ago and the PSA was high, baseline was very low. So I thought, hey, don't worry, let's just wait a couple of months. But I, sometimes it takes a while for that PSA to go down. Yeah, I usually try to avoid it for six months just because I've run yeah. into that. You know, you get a super anxious patient who for whatever reason is is able to check his PSA every three to six months because he's just nervous. And then he, someone writes him an order and he checks it after the resume and then it leads you down a rabbit hole, just kind of following them until they come down again. Most of the time it's just that just the patient has the annual exam with the primary and 
they include it, just, I mean, part of it, and it's, it's high, and then you, the patient calls, they, they're concerned, hey, let's wait, let's wait. You had a, a great one last year, let's not jump into the conclusions. I was going to mention, I had a patient, I think for now, hopefully, it's the only resume fail that I had. I took the patient to the OR, and when I was there, it was actually open. So it, when I did a cystoscope in the office, it looked closed, so, but in the OR, it was open. I'm, I was already there. I still did the, I did a laser afterwards. But I took patient. I saw. I showed the the your, your, the wife. Hey, most likely it's not the prostate. It was a patient that continued with some frequency, urgency, uncontrolled diabetes. So probably just that. Was there a lot of tissue to laser? Did you incise the bladder neck, or what did you see? Yeah, yeah. Just, just. That's typically what I would do, just because that's all there's left. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to add any insults or so I just. But it was open. It was open. It was good. Yeah. I usually, when I do the green light, I do a barrel shape, so I open up the, the lateral lobes more, but it, it was nothing. I mean, it was open. Yeah, I think that's probably the one area that I think, in general, I know we touched on it earlier, is that the days of seeing like just a obstructive, purely obstructive picture seem to be less frequent. You know, patients are, have more and more of these mixed pictures, and maybe that, I don't know if that's just because there's more prevalence of diabetes and metabolic syndrome and obesity, or... Maybe people are just having more bladder changes from obstruction and they're getting this this urgency, frequency stuff. But I think it's tricky. You just have to really counsel them because there are times where, you know, you do, you do a great procedure and you feel like it's going to be perfect. And then they come out and their flow is stronger. But then they're like, yeah, but I'm still having all these other storage symptoms. So I think that's the one population where it's sometimes it's tricky because sometimes you still need to treat the outlet just to, to rule that out and to say you've done it. Because if you just treat the, the overactive symptoms, you're like, well, I don't know. And the, exactly, yeah. You do the urinamics after, and it gives you mixed results, some overactivity, but there might be some outlets still. And it, it forces you to go to take the patient to the OR again. Yeah, the equivocal for obstruction is the worst. Exactly. It's like <laughs> moderate uh, detrusor rise with low flow, equivocal for obstruction. And you're like, great, now what do I, yeah. now what do, I do? You, you need to tell a patient, hey, we need to do it again or something, <laughs> do something. But I take pictures and, hey, you look open. So, I mean, let's see. I open it a little bit more, but it was open. I would say that's another point I f forgot to mention earlier when you're when you're counseling them up front about their options. Sometimes if a patient is like, I don't know, mid-60s, sometimes they think that maintaining anti-grade ejaculation is really important for now. And so that's another point that I forgot to say that I'll mention is I'll say to them, you know, the nice thing about this procedure too is, Let's say you get it, and let's say you're one of the unlucky 4% who needs another retreatment. In five years, maybe by then we could either do it again, or by then, you know, if your priorities change and, you know, maybe preserving ejaculation is less important, you could always do, you know, a different procedure then if you need it. So I think the nice thing is it gives you that flexibility. You don't really take anything off the table early on. I, I, I kind of joked, I used to joke with patients that I think every man when they hit 55 or 60 should just get a prophylactic resume kind of keep things open. <laughs> That's the thing. I, I think I see everyday patients, ah, I, I have a big prostate. Well, I mean, your symptom score is zero. No, but I have a big prostate. We don't do anything about that. We treat the symptoms. Or, but yeah, at some point, I think we're going to start doing, <laughs> doing something like that because the patients want it. And if eventually, in a couple of years, they're going to have problems, that's the thing. We, we don't know who's going to have problems or not. But maybe there's going to be data in the future that probably likely we're going to be doing resumes. Yeah, that's the holy grail, right? Like, what, when do you pull the when do you pull that trigger? Exactly. So, Seth, Seth any anything else you want to add? No, I think this has been great. You know, I think one of the exciting things in 
in this arena that we talked about is just, you know, how prevalent BPH is, right? So many men have it. It's such an expensive, costly disease to the healthcare system. And obviously you're, you're balancing functional outcomes, but also quality of life and symptom score and patient satisfaction. So, you know, there's so many options out there, but I think really customizing your treatment plan with the patient's goals is important. And I think that's probably partly why setting expectations up front and kind of talking through. And I think at least the approach I take is really trying to make sure every step of the way they understand the next step and what are the outcome. Because I think, you know, there's often many ways to treat the same problem, right? But having the patient buying into their treatment plan is ultimately, you know, really important. Exactly. That's beautifully said. And looking forward also for the next indications of resume. <laughs> I heard that they're expanding the, the indications for a bigger process. So hopefully they'll come out with the, with the data soon and we can offer it to more patients. Yeah, that'll be exciting. I know they're, they're, they're working on it. So. Well, Dr. Beaches, thanks for being in Backtable. Thank you so much, Jose. This is great. Great talking with you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.